I hope that you two build a curling rink in your backyard because everyone deserves to have one. That's yeah. a great idea. <laughs> Welcome back to another super fun episode of Random Fandom. I say super fun because I feel like we often end up being killjoys, but but it's not also this fun. week. Not this. Not week. this week. We're <laughs> going to talk about something totally unproblematic this week. <laughs> <laughs> the least unproblematic thing in North America. No. Uh, <laughs> hi, I'm Britt. I'm just in case you forgot your friendly non-binary pansexual gentle being i'm taking that from the hades episode i've decided to openly identify as a gentle being i think that's great i think that's perfect <laughs> i'm stephanie i'm your friendly southerner who became a relatively high maintenance hockey fan nice so well, before we get into that, Britt, do you have a do you have a tagline for us this time? I, I do have a tagline, random fandom, where sometimes we say "Privet" to our new hockey players. <laughs> uh, and that is our topic this week. We're talking about hockey. We're joined with a guest today, Doctor Ben Weatherby. Ben, do you want to introduce yourself? Give us your pronouns, etc. I would love to. So I am Dr. Ben Weatherby. I am a he, him. And my, I suppose my like biographical information is actually very interesting in relation to the topic. So not not altogether coincidentally, I am married to Stephanie. Um, yeah, just, just in case I say something <laughs> that's like really mean about him, I promise we like each other. <laughs> Usually. No, always. Usually. So we're living in Oklahoma right now, but I am a, a a bitter frozen northerner from the from the icy Great Lakes coast, and I I'm a in my veins runs the ice they use to to cover hockey rinks. I have little zambonis that go through my <laughs> through my body. No, I'm a I, I, I am a actually a, a gentle being too, except when I'm at a hockey game. You yeah. can both attest to this, and then I become a ungentle violent loud screaming being because hockey brings out a different side of me but uh until like next week i'm a, an assistant professor at the university of science and arts of oklahoma which is a little public liberal arts school in the middle of the state but very soon stephanie and i are moving across the country to marquette michigan up on the frosty lake superior coast where i will be joining the faculty at northern michigan university which won an NCAA uh, hockey championship in 1991 and has a division one hockey Hooray. team despite being a tiny little, yeah, a tiny little region. Well, not tiny, but small regional public school. Can um, I ask we, you a question, Ben? Yeah, please. So you said that you have little Zambonis in, in your heart, but is your internal anthem uh, the song about the Edmund Fitzgerald? So just Billy Joel singing about that over and over Well, that again. would be Gordon Lightfoot, but 
I, I think Billy Joel should cover it now that you mentioned. Um, yeah, I thought totally. Billy Joel did that song. Oh God! No, it's no Gordon Billy Lightfoot. Joel did the uh, the Down Easter Alexa. Yes, which is um, East Coast right. song. Yeah. That's okay. a Nantucket Sound uh, regional song. Um, I think all of the yes, Billy Joel I, fans and and Gordon Lightfoot fans are going to come after me now. That's all right. Anyway, those are those are two really mean demographics too. <laughs> yep. I think you're screwed. Yep. Uh, but yes. Songs about Lake Superior and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan absolutely live rent-free in my head right now. <laughs> That's a thing for sure. Yep. I want to say one more thing before we dive in, which is I think it's really forward-thinking and progressive and frankly, um, very brave of you both to finally have a straight cis guy on the show to talk about sports. <laughs> um, I'm really happy to be like the first diversity hire on Random <laughs> Fandom. <laughs> I think we're doing really important work here. Yep. yep. Yeah. I mean, well, it's just such a hard time for you, straight white cis guys. We yep. had to, we had to help out anywhere we can. And you know, we're in a process of listening and learning. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> thank you for your, thank you for being here today. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you for your for your courage to come on the show. <laughs> yeah, and it makes really good podcasting to point out that I'm wearing my Detroit Red Wings jersey. And I actually have my hockey stick next to me. I'm brandishing. Um, this is camera. this is the same hockey stick I referenced in our last episode about true crime, where I was talking about I was I was at the house by myself, and so I put the mm. hockey stick next to the bed the just very, in case somebody broke in. So the very hockey stick. That's the very important. hockey stick. <laughs> um, so we are talking about hockey today, and I we should probably start maybe by talking a little bit about our backgrounds with hockey, and I'm going to leave Ben for last because his is going to be the longest. Mm -hmm. But I, so when I was younger, I, I grew up in Tennessee. I went ice skating maybe once a year if I was lucky for like winter youth group camp. We would go up to Gatlinburg mm -hmm. and we would maybe go ice skating there while we were there. So I grew up, you know, occasionally ice skating, not a lot of hockey. It wasn't until I started dating Ben that I started getting into hockey because he is a rabid northerner hockey fan so <laughs> uh, but I got really I got really attached really quickly especially to the player who I think lives most deeply in my heart Pavel Datsuk who I eventually named one of my cats after and since then I you know I dole out the extra money to get ESPN plus during the hockey season so that we can watch games and I like to look at the memes lots of memes so that's kind of that's kind of how I got into hockey. It was it was almost entirely based on romantic relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much of a relationship to hockey, if I'm honest. So I grew up in New Mexico, famous for its ice rinks. I did get into ice skating as a kid. I went on like a school trip and like, I want to think it was third grade to the ice rink and I fell in love and I wanted to take ice skating lessons. And so my parents were like, sounds good. And so I did that for quite a while and got into figure skating. So there, we did actually have a hockey team, a youth hockey team at that particular rink. And I saw them and was aware of them and, but I never played any hockey. We also had a hockey team in our city. I think they were called the Scorpions. I want to say like, it wasn't nice. a professional team, but it, you know, it was a local team and I think they still play. I don't know if it's like exactly the same ownership, but I never actually watched any hockey until 
you guys introduced me, which is also really bizarre because I went to Boston University, which has a like they don't have a, a football team. They have a hockey team. They also have other teams like basketball. But I never went to a single hockey game, which is really stupid because the bean pot is held there and it's like a big deal. And in college, I didn't think about how I would feel going into my 40s, having not participated in things like going to a hockey game at my university or going to Fenway Park to watch a game. So I do regret both of those things. But yeah, I I was not introduced to hockey until I went to a very small hockey, like club, college club hockey. Was it high school maybe? And they, they no, were, it was no. it was Louisville versus Xavier club hockey. That's right. It was club hockey. Yeah. I, I had never, I didn't know anything about it, how it worked. Yeah. Since then, it's like I have my two best friends have husbands who are obsessed with hockey. And then my own spouse is familiar with hockey and has been to like Red Wings games. Like he's not obsessed with hockey, but he enjoys it. So I feel like I my I would say I, I enjoy hockey. I like watching it. I think it's fun. This past year, we went to a, a San Jose Sharks game because they were playing the Avalanche, which is Zoe's husband's favorite team. The best thing about that, aside from getting to see sports on a relatively cheap ticket because the sharks aren't like amazing necessarily is that they have a giant shark head that they lowered down to the ice that the skaters skate through that I thought was kind of fun, but I don't have any team or specific player in mind. I just, just like to watch it. I think it's fun. It's fast paced. I I love ice rinks in general. So I, uh, yeah, um, I'm excited to learn, I guess I'll say, but I don't think I'll ever get invested I'll say this for the Sharks. I think that we'll talk about Pride Nights a little bit later, but a lot of teams do Pride jerseys, Pride warm-up jerseys, and I think the Sharks might have had the best Pride warm-up jersey this year. So by Pride, do you mean like we're proud of our team or like no, no rainbow, rainbow like stuff. LGBTQ? Okay. That, I, that, I wanted to make sure. Gay. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I enjoy that. So gay sharks, that's cool. Yeah, let me... Uh, they also have a beautiful teal color as part of their team colors and matt and i were like if we were going to choose uh again for listeners matt is my partner uh, if we were going to choose jerseys based solely on color they've got a really nice color scheme going on there although the yeah. red wings the red wings is quite nice as well that really beautiful yeah it's it's more red about white. the logo than the co- like the color scheme is just red and white but the logo is iconic doesn't doesn't get any better this is the uh this is the logo that the sharks had for their pride warm-up Aww, jerseys that's, that's wonderful i like the I trans colors on the shark itself and they have they have the progress lgbt flag yeah and for listeners who are not aware of what that means it's an extended more recent lgbt flag i think it was developed i want to say in either 2019 or 2020 and it includes additional stripes for trans folks. It has the trans pride flag. It's got um, a bra- black and brown stripes to include uh, the people of color in our community and a yellow stripe with a circle in it to include intersex people as well. So I love how inclusive that is. And yeah. fuck the people on, on Twitter who are like, let's cut the top half of this flag off of our flag because they suck and we hate them. Yeah, it's dumb. Yep. All right, Ben. Tell us your biography. Okay, so I was born in a hospital some, somewhere between the city limits of Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti, Michigan. In I thought you were going to say that you were born on an ice rink, but... Close enough. Um, 
but it's the part of the world where like the baby comes out and just gets like a Detroit Red Wing tattoo inserted on their body at birth as something close to a birthmark. But, but we no, won't I, tell I've, you where. I've I've been a hockey fan pretty much my whole life. And specifically, I've been a Detroit Red Wings fan. I come from a very hockey-centered family. My dad's a very good hockey player. My uncle plays goalie. I grew up playing pond hockey. When I was little, we moved up not to the Upper Peninsula, where I'm headed soon, but to the northern part of the Lower Peninsula, where it's still quite cold. And I lived in a little town there, and there's nothing to do in the winter except uh, sled and skate. So I I grew up playing outdoor <clears throat> pond hockey in my hometown. They'd like freeze the, the skate park. And so there's this like nice big outdoor surface of ice, and I would just kind of head out there every day after school. I have vivid memories to sort of get to the heart of how fandom works here. I have vivid memories uh, from when I was like 10, 11, 12 of following and watching the uh, late 90s Detroit Red Wings when there was this bitter rivalry between the Red Wings and the Colorado Avalanche, just like as by far the two best teams in the NHL who just hated the piss out of each other and and might erupt into brawls every time they touch the ice. And so the Red Wings won back-to-back Stanley Cups, which is the the big weird-looking championship trophy in the NHL in 1997 and 98. And those moments are like real sort of touchstones in my memory of my childhood. Like I kind of orient things around my relationship to the Red Wings. In high school, when I was in high school in 2002, the Red Wings put together this like super team and won another Stanley Cup. And then when I was in college in 2008, the year I graduated from college, actually, they won a fourth in my lifetime. So these are like interesting little milestones. And I have these weird personal relationships with the characters who've been on those teams, the the players who've been on those teams who feel like characters in, in a drama I've been following. So the thing I'm noticing when I think about my history as a hockey fan is how intimately connected my time spent, you know, being a kid skating on uh, the skate park, the frozen skate park, (laughs) um, and batting a puck around is connected to the sort of culture of the Detroit Red Wings and the personalities of characters like Steve Iserman and and Nicholas Lidstrom and Sergei Fedorov, who we might talk about, and how the evolution of the team and the evolution of my appreciation of the sport are like this through line in my life that's it like at once it's a spectator thing and a participatory thing and even a little bit of you know a a parasocial thing like you often see in other forms of fandom and stuff like that uh and i don't mean that in like a bad way necessarily but um it's uh it's interesting how how pervasive and and far-reaching fandom is and also i went I, I did my ba at the university of michigan which has a very storied hockey team as well much like boston universities it's won a bunch of national titles and is famous and has a a really famously uh vulgar and uh angry student section that likes to yell these really well coordinated chants at the other team during games <laughs> and call the goalie a sieve and stuff like that so um that's a sort of dimension of my hockey upbringing too that i would be remiss to neglect so there you go it's interesting that you mentioned the narrative element of it because i think something that doesn't get talked a lot about in fan studies or in a lot of fandoms that there's i think a kind of a huge disconnect between 
media fandom and sports fandom. And part of it, I think, is because so much of sports fandom, depending on the sport, is very much something that's in the mainstream. And yet a lot of the behaviors are so familiar. The things that you do and how you engage are so familiar. And I I, I love the way that you talk about it. Is, uh, they're, they're, so, they're almost like characters and there's a narrative that you, that is ongoing. I, I think that's a really interesting way to frame your fandom. Ben and I went to a conference presentation one time that was talking about hockey as like Canadian tragic theater mm-hmm. and and the comparing it to like the Greek theater and the sense of catharsis. So hockey, this, this guy was arguing that hockey provides for many Canadians that same kind of purging of emotional energy mm-hmm. that tragic theater provided for the, the Greeks. And it's got heroes and villains and and supporting characters and lead characters and it's Mm -hmm. it's it's very dramatic and i think hockey's better for that any sport any major sport except maybe soccer Mm -hmm. and and basketball's up there too i guess but the performance on the rink sort of allows the players to demonstrate personality and style in hockey Mm -hmm. in a way that you certainly don't see in football for example what do you mean by that so the styles of play in hockey are, are are varied. It's a very creative sport, and there's lots of different ways to do it. So, for example, our cat is named Datsuk, named mm-hmm. after the former Red Wings center, Pavel Datsuk. And Datsuk was famous for being at once a massively unselfish player who would almost always pass before he could shoot mm-hmm. uh, or before he would shoot but also the best stick handler in the NHL. So you can you can go on YouTube and watch these hours-long highlight reels of uh, Pavel Datsuk stick-handling his way around defenders and making people break their ankles and fall over. Oh, um, no. The, the, not literally, but... <laughs> not actually. It's a, it's a, just it's sitting a, here laughing about stick-handling uh, and then... Uh... Okay, calm down. Um, <laughs> stick-handling in hockey refers to the use of the hockey stick to maneuver the puck around opponents and such. And, and... Sure it does. <laughs> I didn't realize how Freudian this podcast is going to be, <laughs> and I think I might have to leave. Um, no, but but the point is, if you talk to a hockey fan about Pavel Datsuk's style of play, they'll know exactly what you mean. It's it's characterized by, sorry, really impressive stick handling and mm-hmm. uh, unselfishness and amazing breakaway skills. So if he's got a one-on-one with the goalie, he could pull off these amazing deceptive moves or deeks as they're called where you mm. um fake somebody out and then go the other way and he was just the best in the game at, at that for a while and then other players are to use the parlance of the game more physical they will run into people more often throw heavier hits others like nicholas lidstrom who's a this legendary defenseman who played for the, the red wings and is probably my favorite player of all time is really unflashy but like never you never really notice him when he's playing, but he just never made any mistakes. And he was just shut down offenses almost to a science. So so mm-hmm. there's like massively different styles of play built into hockey, some of which emphasize running into people and throwing big hits, some of which emphasize passing, some of which emphasize hard shots. It's a really beautiful sport, I think, despite its story, despite its uh, reputation for violence and fighting and stuff like that if if you ignore that the rest of the game is just like this almost ballet like intricacy of cooperation and 
kinetic motion and it's so fluid and the the sounds of the skates on the ice are so beautiful it's it's like i think it's i think it's the most beautiful team sport by a lot and i think that's something that non-fans miss sometimes <laughs> so if you because i know that you i was gonna say i know that you understand football which is gonna sound really condescending but that's just because of who i am and i've had this sport explained to me many times but just as an example of another like really major sport in the U.S. in particular, and I guess in North America, what is it about hockey that really helps us to see those more creative approaches to play compared to something like football? So let's say that you are a wide receiver in football. So you're you're playing offense and you're trying to, you know, sort of break free of your defender and catch a pass and run for a big gain or ideally a touchdown. There's a lot you can do, and there's creativity there too. But basically, it amounts to being able to run fast, being tall so you can jump up in the air and grab a ball at its apex and beat the defender that way. And, you know, and and route running, which often involves sort of stopping on a dime and going a different direction to lose your defender so the quarterback can hit you. And there's more mm-hmm. to it than that. But your your range of what you can do creatively as an offensive player is fairly simple and and you know being good at it usually involves being fast tall you don't have to be tall but it helps but fast in peak condition and stuff like that now i would say that in in football the creativity that happens often happens more in like the play planning and gotcha. yes. play strategy and in that case like you might see more creativity on the level of like coaching staff or maybe when the quarterback is calling plays but in terms of what each individual player does there's a limited number of options that they make in any given moment whereas in hockey I think during the game you know the the coaches are not able to make those by make those like play-by-play decisions for the players it's improvisational right like yeah you have to make it up on the fly and when say two forwards skate into the offensive end blocked by two defensemen trying to get to the goal and, and make a you know high percentage scoring play the range of creative possibilities in that moment is sort of endless in a way that it's kind of not in football yeah well it's you a much faster some... paced game yes yeah it's it's super fast and that's why hockey is played in lines you you just go out there and skate as hard as possible for a minute and a half or so usually and then go back to the go back and sit down and rest for a long time so usually have four lines on offense three lines on defense um Mm. only five skaters at a time because it's exhausting if you if you skated that hard for 10 minutes you'd wear yourself out real fast so yeah yeah. It's interesting hearing this because the way that you've talked about it, it really makes me think about the way that we talk about the more explicitly perf- like performance-based sports. So it just makes me think so much about how we look at figure skating or even ice dancing, where you're paying attention to that person's skates. In this case, you're paying attention to the hockey stick, where they're on the ice, how they're maneuvering around the ice which is something that, again, maybe you might talk about, oh man, that guy really runs very fast or something, but it's it's not really the same degree of attention to small details, I guess, and other types of sports. So it's really fascinating to hear, actually. The dimensions of hockey that I admire the most are, are the dimensions, most of them that are 
very similar to what you see in ice dancing and figure skating the the dexterity the speed the ability to turn on a dime and then in hockey all that is coupled with puck movement passing plays and stuff like that which add another layer of intricacy and in my opinion uh aesthetic beauty <laughs> absolutely a fair comparison so uh, as we were talking about how to prepare for this episode today we we rewatched a couple of documentaries that we both really like me and ben we watched the red army or it's just called red army which was a documentary that was made that came out in i think 2014 that was it, it primarily features Slava Fetisov, who was one of the best players for the Russian national team in the 80s, and mm -hmm. basically the movement of Russian players into the NHL in that time. And then we also watched a documentary called The Russian Five, which is about the five Russians that played for the Red Wings during their 1997 Stanley Cup win. So yeah. wait, quick I think question. That, Can I yeah. ask a question? So this just occurred to me. And then I looked at the notes. You, I see here that you're talking about the Russian team and it, it brought this memory to life of this moment where the, the Americans had like this, um, this kind of surprise win at the, the miracle Olympics. on ice yeah. is exactly What's, where this story starts. What's so weird is my, my dad was living in Germany at the time that this happened and he, they were all kind of allowed to stay up basically super late to watch the game that was happening because it was in the United States. And then the next day he remembers like heading to school and having Germans sort of, cause he lived on a, uh, on a military base of so German citizens coming up near the fences and, and saying, Ooh, S ah, Ooh, S ah, nice. because they hated the Russians a lot more than us. Anyway, it's just a really yeah. weird, like convergence that just happened. So the cool, interesting. Yeah. All right. So I, I think that to kind of give us a chance to talk through some of the stuff that we've already mentioned and like show it in this kind of context, we're going to, we're going to talk about the story of the Russian five, which kind of relates to specifically Red Wings fandom, because I feel like when you're becoming a Red Wings fan, like I was, you know, 10 years ago, you have to learn this story. It's like, it's like this origin story in a way. This is my childhood too. The this Russian has been five childhood were, too. were the thing when I was 10, 11, 12, at that age. In the, in the but it, it really starts with the 1980 Winter Olympics, which were held in Lake Placid. Two months earlier, Russia had, or the Soviet Union rather, had invaded Afghanistan. So like tensions were really running high. There was a lot of talk with these Olympic Games about like the communist system versus the capitalist system. And the Soviet Union very much treated sports as a way to like propagandize their system. So it's the the medal round. The Soviets were a four-time defending gold medalist team, and they got beat by a U.S. team that was mostly college students and amateurs. Mm -hmm. And when you look at like some of the footage of you know interviews following this game, they've talked about it as like this is a victory for our way of life. Like it's mm -hmm. not just a hockey game; <laughs> it's our way of life. It's like because Rocky of, Four, basically, yeah. in real in the real world. <laughs> yeah, Cal um, Drogo, not Cal Drogo. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, I forgot his name. I can't, hold on, <laughs> let me look it up. Anyway, please proceed. Cal Drogo is Jason Momoa. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say Ivan Drago. There we go. Yeah, is the Cal Drogo played by a Swede? Ironically. Yeah. So the the Soviet team had just been unbeatable up until this point, and a 
big thing that was talked about is they played a completely different style of hockey than North American players at the time. So this loss was huge and it it really set the stage for a lot of Russian players wanting to leave for the NHL because after this loss, the Soviet head coach, Viktor Tikhonov, became even more demanding of his players than he had been before. Like he really cracked down. So they were spending 11 months out of the year in hockey training camp. They were permitted to leave their base because a lot of them were also military members. They were allowed to leave their base for one weekend a month to like visit their family. They were doing four a day practices. Fatisov told one story about a guy who found out his father was dying and he asked for leave to like go see his dying father and it was denied Mm -hmm. because it would set back his training. So you've got this combination of Soviet Union starts to need money. They're they're starting to crumble a little bit. The hockey players are they have more opportunities to see what things are like in the West as they're playing these exhibition games in Europe and North America mm-hmm. and also are increasingly disenchanted with playing for the Soviet national coach who was by all accounts a real bag of dicks like just a yeah. very unpleasant fellow. Mm-hmm. He was just a KGB goon who liked hockey and had some connections. So he was appointed to be the coach of the team without any real expertise. And he replaced a very beloved coach who was, he wrote all of these books about like hockey and hockey training. Like he was responsible basically for the Soviet system, but for political reasons, this very beloved coach was replaced by this KGB goon. Yeah. So in in 1978 we're going to we're going to talk a lot about Slava Fetisov who will eventually be one of the Russian five at for the Red Wings. He was actually first drafted to the NHL in 1978. The Montreal Canadiens drafted him. NHL teams at this time were kind of like really low round picks like way 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 in the process they would sometimes throw in bids for soviet players with this idea that like we'll bid for them but they're never going to be able to come over here so like if they can great on the weird off chance that we do we get basically the best defenseman in the world it's probably not going to happen but it's worth like you know torpedoing a seventh round pick or something on it yeah so he actually first got drafted in 1978 he wasn't allowed to leave the country that draft pick like expired the canadians let it go so he was drafted again in 1983 by the new jersey devils at that point in time they started talking about hey maybe maybe you can go play in the u.s we'll think about letting you go play in the u.s this is around the same time that like Perestroika and, and Glasnost are starting in, in 1985. So we're seeing more opening up. Fatisov is told multiple times like, yeah, you'll get to play in the NHL eventually, but we need you here now because he was he was like their best player. So they weren't willing to let him go. And he actually says it, it came to a point where he quit the national team. He said, I will not play for Tikhanov anymore. They have told me that I will be allowed to play in the NHL. They are not letting me. This is this is not right. His teammates rally in support. They say he should be allowed to leave and play in the NHL like you've said he will. Eventually, he ends up in a meeting with the like Soviet minister of defense who is like mm-hmm. yelling at him and threatening to send him to Siberia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he got beat up by the cops at one point. Like it's a whole thing. He still refuses to play for, for Tikhanov, the, the national team coach anymore. Mm-hmm. 
at this time, were the Soviets sending other hockey players to American teams? And like, what did that look like? Or was like, there was sort of a discussion that this could happen, but... That's exactly right. There was a discussion, yeah. but wasn't really happening yet. Okay, gotcha. The the what had so so the the Soviet hockey team was actually part of the Red Army. Like they were all in the army officially. It was like a okay. branch of the army, which yeah. is why they were allowed to compete in the Olympics. Is because they were non professional hockey players. They were yeah part of the government, and NHL players couldn't play because it was the Olympics were amateur only at the time. So. Mm-hmm. They, they had this government-sponsored, well-oiled hockey machine, best hockey team in the world by a long, you know, long shot, but but living under these brutal conditions that Stephanie's describing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happens in the late 1980s is the Soviets, they, they actually, the word that gets thrown around a lot, the Soviets start selling their players to the NHL. And basically the deal is they let their players come over to the the North America, the U.S. and mm-hmm. Canada, they allow them to play, but those players have to turn over huge portions of their salary to the USSR government. Like they yes. have to send it back to the government. It's not even going back to their families. It's going back to the state. It seems to me that there would be a benefit to a certain extent for them being kind of cloistered a little bit during this time as well. Was there a lot of, do you know if there was a lot of oversight on like, okay, you go to practice and you go to your games, but otherwise we're kind of babysitting you. They kind of lose Every... control of their players once they show up in North America, which is gotcha. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That complicates things. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in 1989, we have the, the first Soviet player that is officially allowed to join the NHL by the Soviet government. This guy named Sergei Priyakin. Uh, and I think I can't remember who drafted him, but it was a team that deliberately did not draft one of the star players, thinking that, like, if it's not one of their, like, top tier guys, they're more likely to let him go. Mm-hmm. In 1989, the Soviet Union also had their first player to defect from the Soviet Union specifically to play in the NHL. And that was Alexander Alexander Mulgini, mm-hmm. who went to a exhibition game in Stockholm and then snuck out of his hotel that night and Mm. defected to the, to the U S to play in the NHL. And this is pretty Um, close to the fall of the Berlin wall, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In 1989. So after, after he was drafted in 1983, in 1989, Fatisov is finally allowed to come to the U S he makes Mm -hmm. his debut with the Jersey devils. So there's a six year period in there between him getting drafted and him actually being allowed to come to the U S and play. Wow. Also in 1989, the Red Wings, drafted they, they were in a rebuilding period they had been in a huge stanley cup slump mm-hmm. they actually went 42 years without a stanley cup so they're in a rebuilding and the general manager wants to get russian players and mm-hmm. so he, he drafts two russian players in 1989 sergey fedorov and vladimir konstantinov the red wings vp a guy named jim lights Finds the only guy he knows that knows hockey and also speaks Russian. Like, <laughs> and it happens to be a journalist who covered sports in Detroit. Mm-hmm. So he has this journalist take secret letters to an exhibition game in Helsinki. And this mm-hmm. guy uses his press credentials 
to to get to talk to these two players Fedorov and Konstantinov and he gives them these like he's like oh and also here's like a media book with stuff and inside each of these media books is these secret letters from the Detroit Red Wings saying Mm -hmm. like we've drafted you we want to help you come to the U.S. to play for us yeah I'm just imagining books with like the you open it it's just a page is cut out and there's a letter in there yeah it's kind of like that like that's yeah. the right vibe because they, um, they had to come up with artifacts that you could pass off to the players without raising the suspicion of their you know kgb overseers so they they like did tuck things into leaflets and mm-hmm. it's all very sneaky i like <laughs> the part in the movie this is in the movie red army where the detroit news reporter that stephanie's talking about described Fedorov is says he would have been a great card player because he like saw the letter and emoted nothing like he <laughs> he recognized what was happening and he didn't even like blink an eye so yeah that was that actually was... in Russian five not Red Army but oh you're right Russian five yeah still I feel like living that long in that state would would teach you how to not emote yeah <laughs> for yeah. sure yeah. yeah so Fedorov was really excited at another exhibition game he arranged to meet with the the vp jim lights i believe it was they talk it over he says i want to come but i'm worried about my family mm-hmm. right like i i am not ready to leave my family behind in 1990 he decides to defect he's had enough at the the like soviet hockey training boot camps or whatever mm-hmm. so the russian national team comes to portland oregon to play in a like goodwill tour exhibition match and plus a defection opportunity (laughs) yeah and after the game back at the hotel Fedorov leaves the hotel gets in a car with Jim Lights the VP and a translator and they immediately get on a private jet and fly to Detroit and they hide Fedorov in in the VP's basement for a few days while all of these like calls from the state department are happening and like oh wow and meanwhile, like Fedorov is seeing color TV for the first time and it's just like, whoa. Yeah, I'm just imagining him in the basement, like watching American TV and like getting a uh, little Caesar's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know. it's stunning what what a cool like, you know, like espionage story this is. And that's another thing about hockey fandom I I find really provocative and, and, and interesting. And it's perhaps mirrored by some things in baseball. There, there's been interesting baseball stories about Cuban players who yeah. defect to the United States by like smuggling themselves into Mexico and coming across the border. But hockey's a massively, I mean, within cold Western places anyway, it's a massively uh, international sport. And the NHL used to be all Canadians, basically, but mm-hmm. now it's uh, well uh, less than half Canadians and has a lot of Europeans from Russia and Sweden and Czechia and Finland. Yeah, and 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 you get this interesting drama that that builds around the historical tensions there and and the alliances among like these internationals on on the same teams. I, I think that's part of the allure of the game as a fan is the sort of zany cast of characters you get like on any one NHL team and the international yeah. flavor. So Konstantinov, the other player they drafted, was a little bit harder to get. 
because he had a contract with the Russian military. He was like a captain in the army. Mm. And if he left, he would be considered a felon and he would be an eligible for a work visa. He also had a wife and daughter that he refused to leave behind. So what they ended up doing, they the VP found a Russian journalist. He gave this Russian journalist a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. And the Russian journalist used this money to bribe six doctors into saying that Vladimir Konstantinov had inoperable cancer. Oh, wow. They got him discharged from the military. And immediately following that, he defected from the Soviet Union with his family. And it was actually in 1991, while the military coup was happening, they were getting yeah. out of the country. That's that's amazing. Why don't we have Argo, which admittedly is an interesting story, although apparently we forgot about all of the Canadian help. I was reading that the other day. But why don't we have this movie? I want to watch this movie. Or do we have this movie? And I've never we seen have the, it. We have the documentary Red Army or uh, Russian Five, but it would make a good I think espionage this would, thriller this, with this actors. This would make too. a great movie. I would watch yeah. that this summer. Yeah. <laughs> Get on that. So the the Red Wings now had two Russians, both of whom were doing very well for the team. In 1990, they drafted another young Russian player, Slava Kozlov. He started playing in 1992, so this would have been after the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Him coming over on a contract was a lot easier than it had been for players up until that point. Slava Kozlov was notoriously grumpy. There are all of these pictures of him... just like it's not even like resting bitch face it's just like a constant scowl of disapproval yeah i love slava kozlov when we were talking about style and personality on the ice he was interesting because he was really inconspicuous like you didn't really notice kozlov dancing through defenders the way fedorov who was the big superstar of the russian five would but kozlov would always sort of sneak in opportunistically to the right place and and just like no one would notice him and he'd just bloop in there and tap in a goal and was a really prolific goal scorer he was he was hilarious he was awesome (laughs) he also kind of refused to learn english (laughs) he was like (laughs) if people want to talk to me they'll learn russian and he was like i was here for two years and nobody learned any russian i wait two two years no one learns russian yeah That's very silly. It's funny that you say that because I I looked it up to see pictures of him. And in two of the pictures at the top of this Google image search, he's smiling. But in one of them, he's smiling at at the press in what appears to be, well, I actually don't know if it's in, I was guessing Moscow because of the building type, but I actually have no idea. Uh, Oh yeah, it does look like it. I just was like, I can see a couple pictures lower down, but there were a couple where I was like, he's smiling. (laughs) Yeah. Not that that means he wasn't grumpy. One of his teammates, Darren McCarty, who is also a pretty famous former Red Wing in his own right, said that uh, he would go into the locker room and be like, good morning, Kazi. And Kazi would always be like, fuck you. (laughs) What? Maybe he's not a morning person. (laughs) Maybe. All right. So they're they're up to three Russians. We got to we got to get all the way up to five. That's where the story is going. In 1995, the Red Wings traded for Slava Fetisov, who was an older player at this point. He's he's getting towards the end of his career, but he's still recognized as one of the best defensemen in the world. He had been struggling with the New Jersey Devils. Kind of one of the things that gets talked about a lot is the 
some of the trouble that Russian players, Soviet players had adapting to North American style of play because Soviet style of play is so focused on teamwork, on moving the puck, on passing, whereas North American style of play tended to be more individualistic, but also mm-hmm. more physical in terms of like, we'll hit people. Meaner, um, this, frankly. Meaner, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, the 80s and 70s in the NHL is the heyday of really mean hockey characterized by you know think think of the 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 toothless mustachioed guys with mullets when you when you, <laughs> you think of the worst image of hockey like that comes out of the 70s and 80s and, and mm. the the broad street bullies the philadelphia flyers teams who won stanley cup in the 70s and are notorious for being the meanest so like that that era of hockey was kind of trickling through the 90s still mm-hmm. and the soviets had a really hard time adapting to it because and they got specifically targeted yeah, in a lot of ways the, the because of like anti-communist sentiment so they the red wings get fatisov he as soon as he gets to the red wings and he's back playing with like soviet players he starts doing really really well Mm-hmm. They go to the Stanley Cup playoffs that year. They get outed by Fatisov's former team, the Devils. Mm-hmm. But they're, you know, like they they feel like they're on their way to something. So Scotty Bowman, who was the head coach at the time, he knew that the Soviet system worked in five-man units, right? Mm-hmm. Like you you had the same five guys who worked together all the time. And so he uh, was like, I need a fifth Russian. <laughs> here's why this is... Like, you'd think that that would go without saying, because there are five skaters and one goalie on the ice at all times. But in North American hockey, you traditionally play with a three-man unit and a two-man unit. You're three forwards and you're two defensemen, and they're sort of interchangeable. The defensemen stay back, the forwards play up, and it's very positional hockey. If you watch the Russian Five and other Soviet hockey units... There's less of a distinction between the forwards and the defensemen, and there's this sort of cycling, nonstop movement among the five players, which requires that the defensemen play offense more often and the def- the forwards play defense more often, and it's all about retaining the puck and sort of playing this perpetual game of keep away, which is kind of unheard of in the NHL at this point. So mm-hmm. that's why Bowman wanted a fifth Russian is so he could make that thing happen in an NHL game and confuse the opponents. It just wasn't in the game right. in the NHL at that point. It seems so, like a more like just good strategy to have people who know both defense and offense personally. Yeah, and they can speak Russian to each other on the ice and no one else spoke Russian. So it's like knowing code, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 Bowman decides to sacrifice one of their top goal scorers, Ray Shepard, for a fifth Russian, Igor Larionov, who is also an older player. He had been Fatisov's teammate on the Russian national team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Igor Larionov's nickname is the Professor. Let's um, go. Yeah. Why? Because uh, <laughs> he's because he's little and mousy and wore glasses off the ice and was also famously super smart. Like, okay, <laughs> he, he was the best, probably the best playmaker among the the Russian unit. And mm-hmm. if you go listen, you can like find interviews with him on YouTube and stuff. And uh, unlike some some of the, not that this is a mark of intelligence, but he speaks very good English, mm-hmm. and he's 
really interesting and articulate in, in the sort of describing a lot of the issues that we've been talking about today and talking about hockey. He's mm-hmm. he's fascinating. I love Igor Larionov, one of my favorite yeah. hockey players ever. Nice. So they they have their five they have their five Russians. The the older players, Fatisov and Larionov, they became like real mentors for the younger Russian players. Helped, I think it helped all of them have more of a sense of like belonging and family mm-hmm. and and dealing with some of the homesickness and stuff. So in December of 1995, the Red Wings played the Canadians and they had a massive win, 11 to 1 over mm-hmm. the Canadians. And that this seems actually... like a, an outrageously high scoring game for hockey for nhl it's absurd yeah yeah like five three is a high scoring game Mm -hmm. four to two is a normal game this game drove the canadians goalie patrick wah to quit like he he came off of the ice and looked at the team management and said this is my last game as a canadian and part of this there was some tensions between him and the new head coach Mm-hmm. That had been longstanding, but this was like the final straw for him was this loss. Did he move to a different team afterwards? He did. He, just... he okay. went, <laughs> yeah, he went to the Colorado Avalanche, which was the team that the Red Wings faced off against in the 1996 Stanley Cup playoffs. So mm. Wa moved to the Avalanche in like probably January 1996. So it's the, like that same season. Oh, the Red did, Wings come around. <laughs> did he quit the Avalanche after that game? He didn't. <laughs> he didn't. He actually stayed with them okay. until the end of his career. I think he was there like another. I think he, he was with them for like eight years. The Avalanche later in his career. Oh, okay. he was a terrible coach, but he was very good goalie. <laughs> uh, um, I was just curious. Like, was was there this interesting point of yeah? <laughs> he just uh, like every time he gets they're following team, he's like, me, I'm leaving. <laughs> so 1996 Cup playoffs. The mm. the Red Wings and the Avs are by far the two best teams in the league. So it wasn't the the final game, but pretty much everybody knew whoever wins this conference championship is going to be who takes the Stanley Cup. Wa is now in gold. The Red Wings lost in game six after Avalanche player Claude Lemieux made a notoriously dirty hit against Red Wing Chris Draper. And I'm actually going to pull up the video here. One to nothing on a rattle. First blood. Coffee dumping it into the corner. It's around the net for a point. Lusaroff has him well covered. Red Wings have three in deep. And they can't come up with it. Coffee will stop it. No one. They missed it at the blue line. So they have to stop her back on side. And a penalty is going to be called. And it's going to be Lemieux again, I think. The Red Wing player near the bench was dropped. Hit him right from behind and jammed him right into the boards. Not sure who it is, but it upset the Red Wing bench and the Red Wing players. Bowman wants them to get away now from anything to do with Lemieux because Lemieux's got the penalty. Chris Draper is the victim, and it was a... So the trainer after this hit said he wanted he wanted to put Chris Draper in a backboard right there. Draper mm-hmm. refused. He said that Draper had a four inch dent in his face. I mean, I was watching the video and thinking it had to be bad as his helmet was on the ice and you could see how he was pushed into the boards. I didn't see the initial moment, but it looked bad. There's a video of him after the hit and the whole side of his face is 
kind of swollen up like a balloon and and it's it's really ugly Mm. so it like it broke his jaw it broke his orbital bone in his cheek he had to you know have surgery he had to have his jaw wired shut but what happens in the hit is he lemieux hits draper from behind and it's it's the place in the boards where there isn't glass because it's where Mm -hmm. the players are sitting Mm -hmm. so his face actually goes into like the corner of the boards there Um, and this was back before a lot of players wore any kind of like face shield or yeah um cage or anything so that that sat very poorly with the red wings (laughs) um yeah, I they imagine didn't so. Feel like Lemieux was sufficiently punished for the severity of the hit, and it didn't help that Lemieux was kind of a notoriously dirty player in general. Like the guy had a reputation. Yeah. So there, there are these archetypes of hockey players, right? Like yeah. there's the star forward, there's the the uh, enforcer who's sort of there to fight and protect your star forward, which is sort of a, a dying archetype i suppose i'd call claude lemieux a pest like he was a good player really good forward but he excelled in just sort of getting under the skin of the other team usually through pretty nasty methods usually not quite that nasty but was this like relatively common like in terms of having people who might do dirty plays or i'm just i think i'm trying to get a sense because i i've seen little you know stuff happen at hockey games where there's little fights that get started over this or that and sometimes i can't tell if it's like part of the performance of i am on i am on the ice and performing hockey or if it's i don't know bound up in the actual emotions of the players so i'm just curious like did you mentioned archetypes there seem to be more kind of pest archetypes in the the 70s to 80s period that you mentioned or not really yeah probably but it's that still around oddly enough claude lemieux's son now plays for the la kings and he's a dirtbag too he he uh bit a guy <laughs> oh my god yeah <laughs> no <laughs> yeah <laughs> don't, uh, don't fight a, people <laughs> he pulled a louis suarez but but in in hockey Luis Suarez is a Uruguayan soccer player who bites people sometimes. Um, but, I was wondering because the first person I thought of was Mike Tyson. But... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sort of like that too. It, it's an interesting question you pose because if Claude Lemieux and Chris Draper just like saw each other on the street outside a hockey game, they wouldn't like rush toward each other and beat the shit out of each other, I don't think. But there is this sort of performative antagonism that happens on the ice and certain players play a role that doesn't usually involve anything as nasty as that hit, but often involves these little sort of getting under the skin strategies of the other team. And there've been a lot of players in the NHL history. Um, Sean Avery was one of them who famously would wave his stick in, in the eyes of the opposing goalie during a Mm. power play to try to distract him which was technically legal and they had to make a rule about it because they're like, well, clearly he shouldn't be able to do that. Right. And um, so there are a bunch of them, but Claude Lemieux is a famous one. I'm curious too, like, so not to say that he didn't do this absolutely on purpose and that it wasn't dirty and that it didn't have negative effects, but I'm also curious, like if you get swept up in the game, because there's a lot of bodies, you're moving very fast, like, skate rinks are not exactly uh, safe places. I I sometimes wonder if you get caught up in the moment, but you didn't intend for it to hit that hard. And it does. I don't know. I don't know if there's a, I I doubt he tried to 
injure Draper that badly. I, I think it was a what we'd call a dirty hit because he hit Draper from behind, which is illegal. Yeah. And it's illegal precisely because it's dangerous. When you're hit from behind, you can't see it coming. Mm -hmm. And you're very vulnerable to having your face smashed into the boards or the glass or whatever. Yeah. And so it was a really dangerous, dirty hit that was absolutely intentional. But the specifically nasty results probably weren't intentional. It was right. bad luck. But, you know, you kind of you kind of roll the dice anytime you hit somebody like that because it can be a really bad injury. Mm -hmm. So the Red Wings lost the game. The Avalanche went on to win the Stanley Cup that year. Can I can I ask for some clarification for both myself and listeners about mm -hmm. the Stanley Cup process? <laughs> can we do a brief rundown of like how how does how does that process get started and how many games are there for the Cup specifically? Yep. So there are sixteen teams play for the Stanley Cup in a in the playoffs so that the top 16 teams or rather the top eight teams in each conference qualify for the tournament. It's a seeded tournament played in best of seven series. Um, every round is best of seven. And so the Red Wings and the Avalanche were both in the Western Conference at the time. And mm -hmm. they met in the Western Conference finals right before the Stanley Cup finals. And that year, the Avalanche won in six games. Okay. Um, so it's a pretty traditional playoff format. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah, no mm -hmm. problem. Okay. Avs won the Stanley Cup. The The next season, things are tense between the Avs and the Red Wings. They meet, they meet four times total in the regular season. The first three games go by without much of note. The Red Wings are very good that year. The Avs are also still very good that year. We get to March of 1997. And one of the things that's interesting that happened around this time is after 1996 and the Stanley Cup loss, the Red Wings coaching staff decides that having the Russian five play as a five-man unit all the time is not a strategy that's working anymore. Teams are figuring out how to deal with them so they start breaking them up more and they also we see a lot of other players in the red wings lineup that have been influenced by the soviet style of play they're kind of all learning the soviet style of play mm -hmm. instead of it just being this one line that you know to expect this stuff from it's coming from all over the team now Mm -hmm. So we get to March of 1997. It's the final matchup between the Avs and the Red Wings in the regular season. Mm -hmm. There were a total of four fights during the game, and it culminated in what is like there's a, an official Wikipedia page called the Red Wings <laughs> Avalanche Brawl um, <laughs> that happened during this game. It starts when Igor Larionov, who never fought, like he was notorious for his like... Notorious for pacifism. He was notorious <laughs> for pacifism, right? Like he didn't fight. He gets hit by, he gets hit by Peter Forsberg. They come back up. They're, they're still kind of going at it somehow. Mm -hmm. Like Igor Larionov gets actually involved in kind of a fight. Mm -hmm. And while that is happening, Darren McCarty... He just goes for Claude Lemieux. So I'm going to show this video. Okay. I, I just want to note that the tag on, on this video, the like watermark is hockeyfights.com. So <laughs> here is Larry Onoff. Avalanche holding the Red Wings in their own zone. Larry Onoff and Forsberg away from the play. Peter Forsberg took a swipe at Igor Larry Onoff. And it is an often. 
And we see Igor Larionov go, but he did. And now Darren McCarty gets his shots in at Quad Lemieux. And look who came all the way out to try to help. Patrick Waugh. Oh, my goodness. You never know when to expect it, Darren McCarty said before. Vernon and Waugh. Mike Vernon with a great left. Follows up with the right. How about this? Lemieux was hammered by Darren McCarty, and he is being helped into the locker room. Wow, that's quite a brawl. So, I, I, so it's yeah. I don't know. Talk us through this because I, I find fighting in hockey to be a really interesting thing if you compare it to fights that might happen in other types of sports. So, yeah, brawls of this magnitude are pretty rare. But what one thing I want everybody to understand is that precisely because of this moment, because of his cold cocking of. There's another Freudian term for you of um <laughs> of uh of Claude Lemieux. Darren McCarty remains one of the most beloved people in the city of Detroit to this day. Like he's a <laughs> he's a city celebrity and still lives there and like has a radio mm-hmm. show and everybody loves Darren McCarty. Mm-hmm. He's he's a sort of fixture in in Red Wings culture. So yeah, this this was an interesting game because the fight we saw like it erupted. I think it was. Brennan Shanahan in the in the Russian Five documentary talks about how it erupted or organically is the word he uses, mm-hmm. which is to say they didn't plan to fight, but the simmering tension from the Lemieux hit was like still there yeah. nearly a year later. Mm-hmm. And this was the result of it. And it's this sort of iconic moment in hockey history and Detroit sports history. And I remember watching it on TV when I was a kid. Like it was it was a thing. It was a it was a real event. Yeah. You don't often it... have like goalies come out to fight. Yeah, that was like... a big moment when yeah. um, when the goalies fought. You don't see that very often. Well, it's interesting because I again I have less experience with hockey, but I feel like every time I've seen a bit of a tiff in a hockey game, I feel like there's something slightly different about it. So you can see players getting upset at each other and maybe hitting each other in other sports on TV. It's not like if you have something that is letting out aggression in one way, that aggression may not come out in another way in in these types of sports. But I feel like there's something really particular about it. I can't quite put my my finger on it. In terms of like the the goalies, I feel like a lot of fights, a lot of tiffs happen over if someone else on the other team is fucking with your goalie. Like that's a big no-no. 100%, yeah. But I also if, if feel you, like, yeah. I feel like they're, maybe it's just the fact that the, the team just like immediately seems to jump on board in ways that you're not really seeing in other kinds of sports. It seems like part wrapped up in the whole ethos of the game rather than being something more individualized i feel like that you might see in others sports potentially you don't usually see a full team brawl like this in a hockey game but it's very common to see individual fights and often the sort of self-appointed enforcers will sort of fight each other just because they feel like they should i guess yeah Um, often you know somebody will sort of deliver a dirty hit or do something nasty and somebody will quote unquote stand up for themselves and a little fight will break out mm-hmm. but usually it's like an isolated little ritualistic thing where the two players sort of like everything stops the two players kind of have their fight and eventually the refs break them up 
and then all the players on the bench will tap their sticks on the bench as a mm-hmm. as a sort of show of you know well done way to way to be way to be men i guess i don't know i think hockey fighting is kind of stupid um but i'm also very emotionally invested in this brawl that broke out so mm-hmm. you, you can you can see that i'm aware of my my problematic emotional commitments right now um, no this is supposed to be the unproblematic episode yeah no, I, I, I don't think, I'm not trying to problematize it to, no, it's, uh, to throw it is, a gross it is, academic though. term. It's, it's, it's I, violent, like it's it's violent and the violence is sort of built into the game and, and recognized as yeah. such. And it doesn't have to be there. It's, it's kind of a weird thing when you get down to it. I guess, I feel like there's something about the ritual. It does feel, you, 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 you called it, you, you said it was kind of ritualized. And I think that is the thing that I that really stands out to me about it. And I, I think it's related to earlier when we were talking about catharsis, there's something really interesting about the way these things occur in hockey compared to other spaces. It's not that you don't have a team ethos. It's not that you don't have, uh, you know, players doing one thing and other players getting angry about it, but there's something about it that just seems different in hockey compared to other things. And I, I can't put my finger on it, but maybe it is some of the expectation of hockey as a sport from the perspective of players and the spectators is that you're going to see these ritualized moments. And even the way you pointed out, like, a fight will start, everything stops, and they kind of fight it out a little bit, and then the refs come in. Yeah, it seems like there's definitely, it's not a script, I don't want to call it that, but there's something really specific about it and the way that it seems to play out here versus other spaces. I don't know. It's not a script, but there are designated fighters on a lot of teams, the the Mm -hmm. enforcers, the pests, you know, your, your star forwards usually aren't the ones who get in fist fights those are usually the guys that the other players protect so so it is it is an interesting set of personalities and casts of characters and sort of team archetypes that we see in play again and and one expect- expectation historically is that certain types of players will step up and fight when they need to so it's not scripted but it's like it, it's it's at least in the next zip code over from stuff like pro wrestling in a funny way yeah yeah and i i think that there's like division among hockey fans about the role of fighting and it so the one of the red wings commentators mickey redman who is this like old guy who loves drinking ginger ale <laughs> um oh, but he boy, i tell you he is says it, is it I burners holy jumping it is yeah. oh it's definitely i'm burners. assuming it's burners all right yeah. <laughs> um but but sometimes when, don't drink Canada uh, like, dry in Michigan. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, sometimes when a when a hockey fight will be breaking out and the refs will step in, Mickey does this thing where he's like, "Oh, just let them, just let them, like, just let them fight." Basically, is the thing. Like, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes among older hockey fans and especially like Canadian hockey fans, there's this sense of like something about the game is being lost if we cut down on the amount of fighting that happens. And I think that there's been a lot in the rules, especially as they've been trying to be more proactive about things like preventing concussions. Yeah. Yeah. To cut down on some of the violence that does not have to be in the game. Right. Um, Well, do you guys remember? Well, of course. Well, maybe I I remember the first game you took me to, which was my first other game. We sat next to at least one of them was Canadian, but a couple that were going just just to get hockey, like in some form or fashion, basically like what the rest of us were doing. And 
I remember they were so polite and lovely and warm, but once the game started, there was definitely a like, this is when the game is in play, we're going to yell, we're going to, you know, be engaged in a really active way as spectators. And yeah, it seems interesting. Like, I, I remember them as being Canadian as well. So it seems like they're, it's again, it's not a script, but there's something very ritualistic expected out of the, there. There's kind of like a give and take between the spectators and the players in a way, in a way here too. Yeah, that's the irony of like Canadian identity <laughs> too. Like the, the two things that you are, are known for are is, is apologizing too much and being too polite sort of to a fault and then <laughs> screaming and becoming a... a, a belligerent lunatic as soon as you step into a hockey rink and yeah maybe maybe that's you know maybe one allows the other like we have to it's like the purge (laughs) yeah exactly hockey is the purge hockey is canada's purge with no killing it's just 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 like the occasional concussion at most usually (laughs) yeah so so um so civilized when you put it that way (laughs) yeah so the these teams match up again in the 1997 Stanley Cup playoffs. They're they're again in the like Western Conference Championship game together. Another brawl breaks out. <laughs> this one's like slightly less famous, I guess. But the the Wings win that series. They go on to sweep the Flyers to win their first Stanley Cup in 42 years. I mean, that's pretty exciting are we familiar with the term sweep uh no i am not familiar with that to to win to sweep a series in hockey and other sports means you if it's a like a best of seven series it means you win four games in a row without without losing a game okay so they beat the flyers in four games and the funny thing i have to mention there is that the flyers had the flyers were actually favored to win that series they were really good that year and the Mm -hmm. red wings were also good but they weren't quite as monolithic of a team as they had been the previous year where they won Mm -hmm. some absurd number of games but they got it together at the right time obviously but the flyers had this starting offensive line of just huge dudes just like these Mm -hmm. giant dudes the most famous of whom was eric lindros big canadian forward and they were called the legion of doom that line (laughs) so that's awesome when when it looked like when the Red Wings, I think, had won three games and it looked like they were sort of on the precipice of sweeping the Flyers. The the Detroit fans showed up with these signs that said Legion of Broom because they're about (laughs) to get swept. And I maintain that that's the funniest thing in the world. I love that. (laughs) I really do love that. You know, this is this is a huge deal. And it was also kind of a proving point for Mm -hmm increasingly international teams so at this point the red wings had the russian five they had a number of swedish players as well and there's this kind of famous clip of a red wings fan going like american canadian swedish russian they're all red wings um and that was kind of like the the sentiment in the city at this time is like Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't matter like the anti-communist sentiment was glossed over a lot when they Mm -hmm. were Red Wings. So it was kind of this proving point too for like an international hockey team, this idea that Soviet players or Russian players could come in, they could integrate. Mm-hmm. You could have a great team built that way. There'd I mean, that's how of... you defeat communism is through sports. I've learned this also from Rocky, <laughs> both one and four. 
<laughs> there were a lot of um, Europeans in the NHL by that point, but there hadn't been a team that was that massively transcontinental mm-hmm. to win a championship until the Red Wings. It was pretty earth shattering in terms of the long-term implications of, you know, what the NHL was going to look like. Yeah. So I was going to ask, did it really kind of change the way in which they recruited and thought about team building? Yeah, everybody. Like the Red Wings were the first team to recruit from Europe that aggressively, I'd say. But if you look at a random NHL roster now, there are going to be Canadians and Americans on every roster, but there will probably be at least one Finn, maybe a couple, probably Mm -hmm. a few Swedes. Probably a guy or two from Czechia or Slovakia, probably a Russian, and then maybe somebody from Germany or Austria or Latvia or Norway. You know, um, it's it's massively more international than it ever has been, and it's going to keep getting more international. I yeah. Think. So unfortunately, there after this like huge peak, there's a little downturn to the story. So six days after this they win the Stanley Cup. The the Red Wings have planned this like golf outing. It's their last day together as a team. After this, all the players will be like breaking for the summer to go mm-hmm. back to their homes. So they decide to go on this golf trip. And and honestly, like golfing was kind of secondary to like walking around and drinking champagne out of the Stanley Cup because that's what you do when you win the Stanley Cup. You take it yeah. places and drink champagne out of it. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. So because they were planning on drinking, they also had arranged like car services to mm-hmm. take them to and from places. Probably, probably because Nick Lidstrom was there and he's, you know, a wholly responsible human. I don't know. I just imagine him being like everybody's teen dad for some reason. <laughs> um, I have to talk about Lidstrom more before the podcast's over. Yeah. yeah. He's he's very important to me. <laughs> So a few of the guys, Fetisov, Konstantinov, and their their team massage therapist, who is also a Russian transplant, mm-hmm. they're getting tired. They decide to leave early. They get in the limo. The driver of the limo falls asleep at the wheel and crashes the car. Oh, no. Fetisov got off with relatively minor injuries. He had like a bruised lung. I think he had some broken ribs. He was Mm -hmm. in the hospital for a couple of days and then was released. Mm -hmm. The massage therapist, the team massage therapist was paralyzed from the waist down. Yeah. And Konstantinov at the time, they said he had less than a 10% chance of living. Wow. If he did survive, it was clear that he was not going to be playing hockey again. Right. He did survive with some pretty substantial brain trauma. Yeah. But this was like all of that like celebratory energy in the team and in the town Mm -hmm. was kind of lost with this accident. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was like a massive tragedy. So the the next season, the the team kept Konstantinov's locker Mm -hmm. in the locker room. Like it's still there. He was still like kind of technically on the team roster. Um, by this point, he was in in rehab. Mm-hmm. All the players wore patches on their jerseys that said "Believe" in English oh, and Russian. I love that. Yeah. So the VK is for Victor Con- or Vladimir Konstantinov. The SM. I can't remember the, the name of the Sergei, massage therapist. I can't remember his last name. Nastikov or something like that. Nastikov. Like they like the. The team members talk about there being this like energy on the team of like, we have to buckle down and do this for Vladi. They called him Vladi. We have to buckle down and do this for Vladi. 
We should talk about Konstantinov as a player for a second. Yeah. Because he's one of my favorite hockey players of all time, too. He's an interesting Russian because he he played in the five-man Russian system really well. He was a really good skater and pretty good goal scorer for a defenseman, too. But I think he was the first Russian we saw come and play in the NHL and sort of play the North American style of hockey better than the North Americans. He was like the hardest hitter on the Red Wings roster at that time mm. by a lot. You can you can go on YouTube and like search something like Vladimir Konstantinov best hit. So that's what Stephanie's doing right now. Mm-hmm. And and he's just like a highlight reel of wrecking people. And he had this so, funny they, they called him the Vladinator in Detroit. <laughs> and he really leaned into it. He he didn't speak very good English, but you could tell he had a really good sense of humor. And he'd say, I'll be back when he was talking to the press and stuff. <laughs> I, I just love him. He was he was such a delight to watch and he was so good. So and... this is uh this is his like biggest hit from the the Stanley Cup finals, the most iconic. There it was. I missed it. I wasn't looking at the right replay. Holy, holy Nikes. (laughs) That's quite a hit. The it's the posture after the hit too. Like he just wrecks that guy and like, he doesn't even move. He's just standing perfectly straight the whole time and just sort of looks down at him. Like, wow. Like he brushed an ant off his shoulder or something. (laughs) He was amazing. There's another highlight reel. You don't, don't don't try to find it, but there's another one where he sort of hip checked Claude Lemieux, who we were talking about earlier, and made him like spin over his own body and like land on his head, and it was it was beautiful. So they find they finally got back at Lemieux and and gave yeah. him a, a, like a proper hit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this was actually before the the big hit on Drake. Uh, else we discussed. Gotcha. But, okay. Um, but Konstantinov was just beloved in Detroit. He was he was like a fan favorite in the in the town, and so this you know the tragedy was extra tragic mm-hmm. because of his reputation and and belovedness. Right. Yeah. He. I think part of it maybe too was because he was such a family guy like he was the one who wouldn't leave without his wife and daughter he's so wholesome um, yeah like even though he's like this crushing defenseman just like wrecking people he's he's the one yeah he was the family man and like the had the perfect little russian family and 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 wouldn't leave without putting his was afraid of putting his wife in danger yeah yeah so sad <laughs> So the Wings do very well again that season. They get all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals. They're playing against the Capitals, the Washington Capitals. They are ahead in the series, three games to zero, going into game four. Mm -hmm. They're playing at home in Detroit. And after the first period, there's some, some like commotion in the crowd. And it's because Vladimir Konstantinov and his wife have arrived at the arena. Um, after the first period and he's he's in a wheelchair he's continued to have trouble with walking and talking and trouble with like emotional processing like the part of his brain that was damaged is you know it prevents him from really having emotional feelings about so like some some frontal lobe damage that game four was actually played in washington oh not detroit but it's actually interesting because 
there's all this footage of the uh, of Konstantinov being like wheeled into the arena and, mm-hmm. and you see the Caps fans like noticing him too and applauding him too you get this right. interesting sense of what a sort of legend he'd become yeah even among non-Red Wings fans yeah I didn't even realize they weren't at home so the you know the the players talk about there's this feeling now that like oh like Vladdy's here we ha- like we have to win it this mm-hmm. game and they do because that's you know it, it feels like a it feels like a hollywood movie yeah it does um, that's what i was just gonna say <laughs> yeah so they they win the cup and part of the tradition of winning the stanley cup is they bring it out to present to the team and the captain of the team has this like gets the ritual first skate so he like hoists the stanley cup above his head he skates around the rink and the captain always gets to do it first Mm-hmm. And then there's this like passing on to the next person who gets to make the the circle. And it's, it says something about like team structure, right? Yeah. So for instance, when they won the cup in 97, the captain, Steve Iserman makes his lap around the rink and then he passes it off to Slava Fetisov as this is a kind of recognition of like his role as a mentor to the team. Yeah. So when they win the cup, the team's on the ice celebrating and they actually wheel Konstantinov in his wheelchair out onto the ice. Mm-hmm. And the first lap with the cup is Konstantinov. They, they put it in his lap and the whole team is kind of like, they're all just one big huddle, like going around yeah. the ice with Konstantinov in his wheelchair. And they like, like made a, a point amoeba. of, re- yeah. <laughs> big wholesome um, amoeba of Red Wings. Aww. They they made a point of requesting that Konstantinov's name be engraved on for the 1998 win along with the rest of the team. And it's gosh, like every time we watch this footage, I cry. <laughs> I learned like early, early in our relationship, like after I soon after I'd introduced Stephanie to hockey fandom, which she took to very quickly that it's very easy to make Stephanie cry if I want to. I just have to trot out the the footage of Konstantinov being wheeled out on the ice in 1998. So are, are we, are we going to watch this footage and Stephanie I don't think I cry can. <laughs> I have she to watch it later. It um, <laughs> That's really I'm feeling sweet. emotional just like thinking about it. Like it's just so, it's just so fucking wholesome, man. Yeah, it really uh, is. It kind of like, it kind of reminds me when we were talking about haiku and like, mm-hmm. This, these moments in sports that aren't just about beating the other team, but like yeah. the fact that like so many of the Capitals fans were also excited to see Konstantinov and were cheering him, even though they didn't win the Stanley Cup. Like it's just, yeah. It's, it's interesting where we locate the drama in these stories because in 97, the clear drama was we got to beat the fucking avalanche you know Mm -hmm. they they are the the evil enemy that must be surmounted and after that it's obvious that we can just breeze through the flyers which is exactly what happened like Mm -hmm. in 98 like the red wings kind of just rolled through the playoffs and it didn't really seem like anyone could touch them and yeah there was no big bad to defeat like the capitals were good but they they weren't on the same level they Mm -hmm. you know they lost in four games and it's it's interesting how the the story of the the nineteen ninety eight playoffs from a Red Wings fan's perspective becomes this redemptive arc for or not redemptive exactly but this 
sentimental arc for mm -hmm. for Konstantinov and the sort of a way of reckoning with the tragedy of that that event so, yeah. so it's like there's there's always this essence to the to the beats in the drama and, and that's it for the 88 playoffs I mean can you talk a little bit more Ben about actually being there for these games like in the moment like not you know we've watched a couple videos now many years removed but what was it like to grow up with this well how did it kind of enter your identity I suppose um I, I you know I was I was a kid I, I don't remember that part of my life that vividly but I do remember sitting around the living room at my parents house r religiously watching all the Red Wings playoff games both those years mm -hmm. and I remember the Konstantinov thing pretty well it was as heartwarming as you could imagine like it, it was sort of a, a magic a magic moment so magical that I went on eBay later and bought this this patch it, nice I happened to have that I didn't even plan that it just happened to be sitting among all my <laughs> my junk next to my desk it's not junk but other stuff here is so it's it's interesting because much like you know we are all past and present English professors in this podcast, much like we sort of pick favorite books and favorite authors and favorite critical theorists, whatever. I've got this sort of inventory of characters in my head who are my favorite hockey players, and I have very specific reasons for, for choosing them. And, and Konstantinov is absolutely top 10, probably top five. And it's, it's because of his style of play that I described, but it's certainly also tied to this this really sentimental almost hollywoody narrative that his his story became and mm. and the that being lodged in my memory as a kid i actually remember the subsequent red wings teams better because i they won a couple other stanley cups later in my life and i was older and sort of remember that part of my life better but i certainly have the the vivid sappy <laughs> memory of of Constantino. Yeah, it's like it's like my feeling that I have for <laughs> there were a lot of dream teams in 1996, but uh one of them is the gymnat the Olympic gymnastics team for the US in 1996. Yeah. And it it yeah, I have this very it's almost like if you went into my memory you'd find this like perfectly soft focus filming, <laughs> you know, of of the teammates and uh particularly like Carrie Strug and I I definitely was obsessed with like you know Dominique Dawes and Dominique Mochianu and and Shannon Miller and that moment where at the time I remember it being so affirmative and exciting to see Carrie Strug land that that second vault on her broken ankle now I look back and I'm like man that's fucking child abuse what the hell but at the time it was really really exciting and it seems like there's something really, I think, formative when you when you're just at that that age between like, you know, nine and and 12, where you're you're not necessarily going to remember that stuff vividly, but it, it almost becomes kind of foundational to you and almost mythical, too, because, you know, you guys have gone back and, and revisited this. And I'm sure for you that that's been an interesting process of like remembering things re-remembering but also kind of shifting your memory but it's interesting it's interesting when we get those attachments i think to yeah. these kinds of figures 
I vividly remember the two Red Wings Stanley Cups. I remember Michigan winning the national title in football in 97 with Charles mm. Woodson really well. I remember Michigan winning the national title in hockey in 98 in this really dramatic playoff game against Boston College. Mm-hmm. Not BU. Who BC. No, BC. Like BU. Yeah, no. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so those, those are all around the same time. And but the, but hockey as a sport burns much more vividly in my sort of mythic memory than than football does. And yeah. I, I think a lot of that has to do. Well, a it's a better sport. It just is. Sorry. <laughs> um, it's it's a much more it's a fast paced, interesting. Um, much more graceful sport with with actually less violence because in football the violence is just built into every play right but also because I think the the cast of characters that hockey afforded me is kind of more interesting because Mm. of the game not because there's anything wrong with football players who are perfectly interesting people too and I was just going to say we've talked a lot about like Russian players but there was also a big Swedish influx in this time Well, we should mention this. Stephanie and I are like Swedophiles, and we deliberately (laughs) went and visited Sweden for a few weeks after visiting you, Britt, in London in 2019. And I think one of the reasons I'm kind of obsessed with Sweden is because of the because of Nicholas Lidstrom and specifically the 2008 Stanley Cup Red Wings team, which had Mm -hmm. Nicholas Lidstrom and Henrik Zetterberg and Johan Franzen and Michael Samuelson and a whole, like a whole army of Swedes, many of whom are among my favorite players too. And mm. there was something really endearing about the Swedish players too. Always seemed really like humble and wholesome and kind of progressive. I remember one time Zetterberg being asked about having uh, gay teammates and he's like, yeah, obviously that'd be fine. Yeah. We're all welcome here. Just play hockey. And mm. it's like, yeah, Zetterberg. And he likes, he's like this perfect looking woodsman with a amazing <laughs> beard and then <laughs> so i think i you know i i like cold remote coastline places in general and i think that coupled with the hockey culture always made sweden really attractive to me so mm-hmm. that's i think that's a big reason why we went there in 2019 yeah yeah well we're coming up close to our two yeah. hour mark so i feel like well, I guess I'll put it to you what, what you'd like to make sure you say. And then I, I'd like to come back to our question of fandom because it's becoming really important to me for us to <laughs> continue answering that question every every episode. So the last thing I kind of want to mention, and, and this is coming off of like Zetterberg's comment about having gay teammates, as, as violent as we think of hockey as being, it's actually one of the more progressive sports in terms of LGBTQ inclusion. In 2012, the NHL partnered with an organization called You Can Play, which was actually founded in memory of a team manager for the Miami University hockey team. Uh, Mm. Miami University is where Ben and I met because we were doing our master's there. It's the one in Ohio, not the one in Florida. But he he was he was started talking very openly about like how he was gay, how he wanted gay folks to be welcome in hockey. And he was tragically killed young in a car accident. And his Mm. father and brother have continued that. And so in 2012, the NHL partnered with um, You Can Play and they launched this big ad campaign featuring like really high profile players from a variety of like national backgrounds based around this idea of like you if if you can play you can play is the slogan (laughs) with this idea being that like your sexuality doesn't matter you're part of the team because you're a good player and like pride night events where they have you know pride 
flag themed jerseys or, you know, events like that have become really routine in the NHL. And this year there's been more vocal pushback than usual, I think. I wonder Um, why. (laughs) Yeah. So that's maybe, I don't know. It's kind of interesting to like have this sport where, you know, for 10 years, They've been like, yeah, no homophobia in hockey, but to get some pushback now. So I just want to see a pride night where you've got drag queens <laughs> on that the ice, actually, at least during, um, at some the, point in the middle of the game. <laughs> the Philadelphia Flyers mascot, Gritty, who I believe is male identified, appeared in a Wonder Woman costume. And I believe that might have made him the first sports mascot in drag in the u.s gritty's amazing like he's almost made me into a flyers fan i've <laughs> i've got no beef with the flyers after the in 97 playoffs it's hard to be mad at a team you swept but um mm. i sort of ignored the flyers after that but gritty is this amazing meme and cultural phenomenon mm-hmm. i love him yeah uh, i want to make one quick point about the russians again which i think is really interesting the the real paradox of the russian the soviet hockey team to me is that they came out of this brutal oppressive post-stalinist system that really denied them livelihood and individuality in a in a really nasty way but ironically that system created this team who were able to do amazingly expressive creative innovative things mm-hmm. on the ice and there's this weird way in which the the soviet style of play with its emphasis on collectivism rather than individualism kind of augmented the talents of every individual player and became this like beautiful little aesthetic allegory of what socialism could be when done ethically even though it was very obviously handled unethically by the government so that's always struck me as this this cosmically fascinating irony (laughs) surrounding the the russians and part of what makes the story of the russian five so so interesting well i think we're gonna cut to our question now so a question we've come to ask and i think it's really important this episode in particular because we are talking about a very different area of fandom that has, I mean, in all reality, gotten relatively little play in fan studies. And I think in a number of self-identified fan communities, there's definitely a large separation between sports fans who are often seen as very separate because it, it there's a lot of mainstream element of it. There, there's kind of a feeling that it's inherently different. So yeah, I mean, I, I we'll start with you, Ben. I mean, what does it mean to be a fan? I don't know that I know for sure, but my gut is to say it's actually not so very different from other forms of fandom. I think when you get down to it, like hockey fans are nerds and they like to nerd out about the game of hockey and the personalities bound up in the game. There's this sense of aesthetic appreciation for the love of the beauty of the game, but there's also this very personal investment in players and story arcs and stuff like right now the red wings fan the red wings suck right now but there's this sense of hope because of our young captain dylan larkin who's a michigan native and is awesome mm-hmm. and this young uh german defenseman mo Sider, who we drafted a few years ago 
and those those character those those players are characters you know they're, they're sort of these characters in this drama that that red wings fans play out on twitter every day and other places mm-hmm. and make memes out of and it's this participatory culture thing that's not so different from being an anime fan or a fan of jane austen or whatever at a certain mm-hmm. level and it it certainly doesn't hurt like if you also play hockey and sort of know the game in this embodied way like i do but you don't have to you know it's 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 kind of open to everybody and i think sports fandom can be really fun and wholesome and inclusive if you find the right sports fans and mm-hmm. sort of appreciate sports the right way as this aesthetic exercise in, in addition to, to other things so that yeah. that's where i'm at now anyway this all sounds horribly greek like let's appreciate <laughs> the aesthetics of the athletics well yeah i'll own it yeah yeah we can achieve arete through our hockey fandom right yep well stephanie actually how would you adjust your yeah you're thinking so, about fandom through this lens we we talked last time about when we were talking about true crime some of the tensions between consumption and production mm-hmm. as we talk about fandom and i think we it was either then or maybe before we we talked about like masculine styles of fandom versus more feminine styles of fandom like it definitely would have come up that week and yeah yeah so I think it's really interesting now that we're talking about something that has traditionally been like a masculine form of fandom like sports fandom Mm -hmm. because I feel like especially with the rise of social media we're seeing more feminine kinds of fandom happening especially with meme culture like Mm -hmm. One of my favorite, like, Red Wings commentators is a woman who makes Red Wings memes. And, like, that is her official job as part of this, like, larger sports blogging conglomerate thing. She's, like, their official meme maker. And it's, it's it's a more feminine way of, like, talking about and connecting to sports. But we're seeing that a lot more, I think. Mm hmm and I, I, first of all, I think it's really healthy. Like, I think it's a good way to combat a lot of the toxic masculinity that can happen in sports culture. Mm-hmm. It opens it up to a much wider fan base, but it also, I think, gives fans more places to do the like production work that fans sometimes like to do without it just being like, sit at the bar and do the like what do they call it couch coaching or something where you're like watching the (laughs) game and talking about what the coach should do like there's a wider variety of ways I think for fans to participate now with social media right yeah I I I think that's really interesting because it I I agree I feel like the consumption production split seems to be reducing when it comes to sports fandom sort of across the board. I, I feel like I can include that even in something like fantasy teams. That's mm-hmm. definitely a very different kind of, and, and I would I would argue sort of feminized sort of approach. Like obviously there's a masculinized background of like betting, I guess, but it's, there's something about the narrative you're putting together that, and, and that you're openly discussing as, as a narrative and as a human interest narrative in a way that I think there wasn't, we, we didn't allow for that room to really be there in the same kinds of ways in the past. And just to clarify for listeners, uh, 
these things obviously do not happen in strict boundaries, right? It really, there's a lot of different factors, but, you know, typically what has been called masculinized fandom has, has been the fandom where you're sort of more invested in, in remembering the facts and the stats, right. And collecting the different things that are related to that particular thing. So with sports, it would be like sports cards and that kind of stuff. Whereas feminized fandom tends to be more relational in a lot of interesting ways, I think. And I would agree. I think those things are really shifting and changing. I think, I think what's really interesting actually about sports fandom uh, on the one hand is that you get this really interesting range of like human relational behavior and emotional embodiment that is fully mainstreamed in a way that actually can be, I think, really positive. It, it, it allows you to express some pretty intensive emotions, including like love and devotion and friendship. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really good thing. And I, 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 I also think that the distance between media fans and sports fans to some degree is, is lessening a little bit, at least in terms of being able to, and I think social media is the place where this is happening, where you, you begin to see so many of these fanish behaviors are very much shared across these spaces and not necessarily as different as we might think. Yeah, I think hockey's really, I, I will say, Ben, you were talking about being more interested in thinking hockey is the better sport. And I will say, I find hockey much more infinitely watchable than a number of other sports. I, I do feel like I, I can't watch sports on television unless it is a performance sport like figure skating or gymnastics or something because I just get too bored. But in person, I feel like hockey is kind of a really fun, interesting sort of fast paced game. I agree that there's some really unique aesthetic elements to it that not that you couldn't find interesting aesthetic elements to other sports as well. But yeah, I think... So what do we have here? We There's headspace here, but I think what we're kind of seeing in a really direct sort of way when we talk about sports fandom that can sometimes be more difficult to trace is that there some, seems to be something inherently social and relational yeah. about that kind of fandom in a way that you don't find in a lot of other spaces. Right. It's about you're you're connecting with a like a social group by becoming a fan or or you're born into it in some cases yeah I also think too like I would have considered myself a Red Sox fan in college in part because the very first fall I was in Boston the Red Sox won the World Series and everybody was watching it and that's what you were doing and that would never have happened if I weren't in Boston right though or even you know I and I weren't in college surrounded by people who were getting into this. So they're there. I feel like these things just hit differently when you're doing them inherently in some kind of group or social manner. And if you, yeah. if you ask people what their favorite teams are and why you get really interesting answers, like yeah. so sports fandom comes from strange and varied places. Yeah. Um, my origin story is not interesting at all, but <laughs> um, you, you see, you, you see a lot of really specific embodied reasons like you're describing why people sort of cling to certain teams, even if they're not from that area sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ben, thank you for being our token cishet guy on the show to talk about sports. You're yeah. welcome. I'm um I'm I'm really happy to have 
done my part in spreading diversity today. Um, <laughs> I feel like um, I'm, I'm proud of what I've accomplished. Nice. Yeah, I, I think that we're all um, we're all a little bit more understanding than we were. Yeah. <laughs> at the start of this. No, I, I, I have to, I will always thank you both for introducing me to hockey and to especially Ben for being so supportive and patient with me and explaining what in the hell I was seeing and and how to understand the game. Oh, I actually really enjoy that. I like explaining rules to people who are just learning it. I feel like you're one of the few people who's explained it in a way that I understand as well. I feel like I've had a lot of different games explained to me that I'm like, I don't, I don't know. So that's really great. I guess our takeaway this week is, listen, engage in some sports fandom, man. There's some really beautiful things and check out hockey. Yeah, man. So summer's coming up and I don't know why we always only go to ice rinks in the winter. Listen, you got an ice rink nearby, go to the ice Ice rink. rinks in the summer are the best. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cool off a little bit, get in some physical activity without feeling like you're going to die of heat stroke. Yeah. It's great. Highly recommended for yes. sure. Ice skating is magic. That's the other thing I'll add. Like there's yeah. nothing better in the world than ice skating. So that's I, a big part of the reason why I like hockey. I, I love ice skating. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on guys. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks everybody for listening to random fandom this week. Uh, that's Vidanya. We'll see you next time. Bye y'all. Bye.